Wonderful. Well, it's good to worship, and we're now going to turn to the Word. We're continuing our series in the Gospel of John. We're page 1079 in these Bibles, John chapter 12. And uh, we're going to do something a little bit unusual today. I've really wrestled with this passage this week, and normally, where we've got this series organized is we're looking at quite big chunks of, of the Gospel each week, and often we just focus on one particular part. Um, but uh, I felt today we actually needed to read the whole of the passage, which is, I wouldn't normally do because it, it's quite long. It's going to take about five minutes to uh, read through this passage, I think. Um, but I just felt convicted that we ought to do that, to listen to the Word of God. Timothy says to Paul, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, that often it's good just to hear Scripture. Uh, just hearing Scripture is probably actually a better idea than hearing me. So um, we're going to do that, and, and rather than me reading it, I've asked Nancy, who's, of course, the most popular member of the Hosier family, to, uh, maybe with the exception of my mother, um, to come and read uh, the scripture for us. Actually, also, this is Nancy's last Sunday here until Christmas, because, ah, because um, she's going off to see Ben Hunter in Bristol. No, she is, uh, she, <laughs> other daughter. No, she is going to North Carolina to go and volunteer at One Harbour Church. He's going to go and be Donnie Griggs's temporary assistant for three months while his assistant is on maternity leave. So Nancy's flying off to North Carolina this week and will come back in time for Christmas, hopefully. So, Nancy, can you come and read the Word of God for us? Let's, let me pray as we do that. Lord, thank you for this amazing passage of Scripture we're going to look at this morning. I pray that as Nancy reads it to us and as then I speak from it, that you would, you would help us to see more of you. Lord, this is such... All that happens in this, this portion of Scripture is so extraordinary, has such far-reaching consequences, and I pray that uh, yeah, the Word would penetrate deep into our hearts, deep into our souls, would shape us, mould us, so we can see more of you and be more like you. In your name we ask it, Jesus. Amen. John chapter 12, verse 12. The next day, that is the day after Jesus was anointed at Bethany, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came up to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. 
But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the Lord that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, before the darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message? And to who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, because, as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, so they can neither see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. Then Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Nancy.
This uh, passage that we're looking at today begins with the story of the triumphal entry. And this is a story which isn't just for Easter, not just for Palm Sunday. Um, It's actually part of the Lazarus story. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead by Jesus. And it's it's all part of that same story, really. Because the, the death and resurrection of Lazarus is the in many ways, the central point of the Gospel of John. It comes in the middle, and it's really the pivot point around which the whole Gospel turns because of what it reveals, because it it forces this question, who is Jesus? Who do you understand Jesus to be? What do you believe about him? And the raising of Lazarus to life by Jesus, as I've said the last couple of weeks, is what makes the cross inevitable. It raises the level of conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. And we need to see how the triumphal entry, Jesus coming into Jerusalem as king, connects with that story. When, when Lazarus dies and then is raised to, to life by Jesus, it's actually, it's actually a pointer, it's a symbol, it's a sign, it's a picture of what is going to happen to Jesus. That Jesus is going to die, but Jesus will be raised to new life. And the triumphal entry very much fits into that story, because when Jesus comes into Jerusalem as king, the crowds recognize him. That's not just a little local disturbance. It's not even just the nation of Israel, the people of Judah, recognizing the rightful king coming back to his throne. It's a symbol of how things are going to be at the end of the ages. That at the end of the ages, the nations will welcome Jesus as king. Jesus is going to die for the world. In verse 32 of our passage, he says, When I'm lifted up from the world, I will draw all people to myself. Jesus' death is for all the peoples of the earth. And then his resurrection from the dead will demonstrate his kingly authority. He has authority even over death itself. And his triumph over death is what will then lead his people into triumph. And so verse 46 says, I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. The people of God are going to be led out of darkness, led into the light, led into the triumph of Jesus Christ. So what happens when Jesus enters Jerusalem and is heralded by the crowds as king is it's a foretelling of what is going to happen at the end of the ages when all of God's people will proclaim Jesus as king. So the the resurrection of Lazarus and then Jesus coming into Jerusalem and the triumphal entry are a picture of how things are going to be. Jesus is going to be raised from the dead. Jesus is going to triumph over death. He's going to be demonstrated by that to be the rightful authoritative king. And a day will come when he will be displayed and recognized by everyone as the rightful true king. That's what this story paints a picture of. Us. And that demands a response from us. And the response that I think we see in this passage is about how the good news of Jesus, and we've talked about this a little bit over the last couple of years, it was a theme at our advanced conference in Bournemouth last May, um, in many ways, that the gospel advances on two frontiers. That the gospel needs to go to the ends of the earth and it needs to penetrate the depths of our hearts. And we see that in this passage, both aspects of those two frontiers. So first of all, let's think about how the news of Jesus needs to go to the ends of the earth. Because of his victory over death, because Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, the Pharisees say, verse 19, the whole world has gone after him. The whole world has gone after him. Now, at that moment, that's hyperbole, it's an exaggeration. The whole world hasn't gone after Jesus. 
There's a, a, a small number of people in Judah who have gone after Jesus. But to the Pharisees, it looks like the whole world is going after Jesus. But of course, what the Pharisees are doing there is, in a sense, again, it's a prophetic statement. They're really getting the point that what Jesus is doing is a whole world's deal. That what Jesus is doing in raising Lazarus from the dead, what Jesus is doing in coming to Jerusalem as king, is not just about that little geographical territory in that time, but it is about what Jesus is going to be doing around the world eternally. And so when the Pharisees say, see, the whole world has gone after him, yes, that is right. That's exactly how things are meant to be. And that sense of the whole world going after Jesus is, is underlined in the next little scene, the next cameo we have in our passage, which is when in verse 20, these Greeks come and they say to Philip, we want to see Jesus. Now, there were some Greeks. There were some Greeks. What were they doing there? This was a Jewish festival that was happening. A festival of Passover was coming up. It was a Jewish deal, but there were some Greeks in the crowd. Greeks, non-Jews, not descendants of Abraham, people who had no natural part in God's plan, but who were drawn to, curious about the God of Israel. And what Jesus is about to accomplish, what Jesus already told us, what was spoken prophetically through the high priest Caiaphas back in John chapter 11, is that Jesus will gather the scattered children of God from wherever they are. And Jesus says, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Jesus says, this is how I'm going to die. I'm going to be lifted up from the earth. That's a foretelling of his death on the cross. When that happens, I will draw all people to myself. And I don't skip over that little three-letter word, all. Now, this this isn't a universalist text, but it is a universal text. The text doesn't teach that everyone is going to be saved. Actually, this very passage makes it clear that there are those who will reject Jesus and won't be saved. But the invitation, the offer of life is made to all. It's universal. I will draw all people to myself, says Jesus, in my death. And one day everyone will acknowledge him as king. And on that day it really will be the whole world has gone after him. So these Greeks come, and they're a, they are a sign of what is to come. But people from the nations are going to come to Jesus. And it says in verse 21 that they go to Philip. And uh, we might ask the question, why do they go to Philip? It's 12 disciples. What is it about Philip? Is he just the one they happened to bump into first? Or uh, was he the one who had the most smiley face? Why did they go to Philip? And we're not told, but we can conjecture, and conjecture when it comes to Scripture is always dangerous, but we can do some conjecture here. And one thing that we know, an informed guess, why they went to Philip is because Philip is a Greek name. Philip was Jewish, but he had a Greek name. Philip is a Greek name. And so I wonder if there's that point of connection. Once they've come to Philip, Philip then goes to Andrew, and Andrew is another Greek name. And of the 12 disciples, it was only Philip and Andrew who had Greek names. The rest had Hebraic names. So I wonder, it seems likely, that the reason the Greeks went to Philip and then Philip went to Andrew is because there was a point of connection. Out of these disciples, who can we get the best response from? Well, this person has a Greek name. We're Greeks. Maybe he'll be more open to us than the other disciples of Jesus might be. There's a point of connection here, and we, we need to look for those points of connection. Look for those points of connection. And what these men say to Philip is actually really profound and very beautiful, although it's very simple. They come to Philip and say, 
We would like to see Jesus. We would like to see Jesus. Now, presumably they've seen Jesus, and that's why they want to see him. They've seen Jesus. They've seen him enter Jerusalem as king. They've perhaps been around and witnessed some of the miracles he's done, heard some of his teaching, but they want to see Jesus. They want to get closer. They want, they want to have an audience with Jesus. They want Jesus to speak with them, minister to them. They, they've got questions they want to ask him. They want to get up close and personal with Jesus. And we've got to believe that there are people in our world who would like to see Jesus, really see Jesus, not just know about him, but actually get to know him. Got to believe there's those connection points, and got to believe that for each of us, there is something about our own circumstances, our own stories, which means that we might be the person who is able to make that connection. There might be somebody this week who you are able to invite to Alpha because you're the natural point of connection, and it might be something which seems pretty trivial, just your name. Philip had a Greek name. That's probably why the Greeks wanted to talk to Philip. There might be something about your history, your story, your job, where you live, your life experience, which means that you can form a point of connection with somebody which would be difficult for anybody else in this room to make. Something unique about you, which means that you uniquely can help people see who Jesus is. That's what happens in this story, and that's what we should be looking for as well. And the fact that these Greek men come now and say, at this point in the story, we would like to see Jesus is significant. It's a sign of what's going to happen next. It's why Jesus, in response, when Philip and Andrew say to him, these Greeks want to see you, Lord, Jesus replies, verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. There's something about foreigners asking to see Jesus which is like the starting gun for the mission of what Jesus is doing. That suddenly Jesus' mission is about to explode out of the few square miles in Judea, which is where it's been focused for these three years. Suddenly it's about to explode out of that and go to the nations. And these Greek men coming to Jesus and saying we would like to see Jesus is a sign that's about to happen. It's the sign that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus is about to be lifted up. He's about to draw all people to himself, and the good news of the gospel is about to go to the ends of the earth. What we see in the death of Jesus is a, a fundamental reordering of the whole world order. Verse 31, Jesus says, now is, the t- now is the time for judgment to come. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. We might think of judgment as something which happens right at the end of the ages, and That does happen. Jesus speaks of that even in his passage. But Jesus says at this point, now is the time for judgment. Now. Now is the ruler of this world driven out. Judgment doesn't just wait to the end of the ages. It's happened. It happens at the cross. At the cross, the cross is a decisive moment of judgment. That at the cross, sin is condemned in the person of Jesus Christ. That as Jesus dies, as he draws all people to himself at the cross, the sins of the world are carried by Christ and are dealt with. Judgment is proclaimed, spoken over sin. It's killed. It's dealt with. It's washed away. And the cross is the defining moment of judgment, of victory over Satan. At the cross, Satan has been defanged. And so while we still see 
the work and the influence of the enemy all around us, his power has been comprehensively demolished. And one day, we'll see that defanged power utterly crushed under the feet of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus says, now is the moment. Now is the moment for judgment. Now the prince of the world is to be driven out. And in this reordered world, this world where the power and the sting of sin, death itself, has been defeated by the death and resurrection of Jesus, in this reordered world, the message must go to all the peoples of the earth. The good news of the gospel must be heralded to all peoples. And that continues now, 2,000 years on from the cross. This, this means it is unquestionable, indisputable, essential that we are involved in international mission. We have to be, because the gospel has to go to the ends of the earth. It has to. And that means that we as God people ourselves have to be in ends of the earth mission. And there's all kinds of different ways in which we do that. Just this morning before coming out, I was exchanging messages with my friend Purin in Kathmandu. Uh, who, who they've been, uh, they're building a new building, which is a whole amazing story itself in Kathmandu. Very complicated, very expensive. And we've been trying to get them money. And that's very difficult to do, getting money from here to Kathmandu. And we just managed to get them some money this week because they had to have the concrete poured yesterday. Because Saturday is a day when the traffic is a little less crazy than normal in Kathmandu. The one day they can actually get the trucks in in these very narrow streets. We're involved in international mission. We have to be. Nancy, going across to One Harbor this week, got friends there. Why? Because we're together in international mission. We have friends around the world. We have to. Giving money to a pastor in Rwanda so he can, in Burundi so he can buy a car, so he can travel around the remote villages in Burundi to minister there. We, we have to be involved in international mission. We have to. It's just part of the gospel deal. But the wonderful news in our world now is you don't even have to leave home to be involved in international mission. Grace and I went down to the beach at the end of last weekend. We managed to, kind of about 5.30, I think it was on Sunday, squeeze in amongst the thousands and thousands. And on the sand down near Branksman, China, I don't think anybody around us was speaking English. And I know for some people that can seem actually quite threatening and worrying, but also there's just, it's just wonderful, the gospel opportunity that the nations are amongst us. Today is when Lansdowne is shut down because the freshest fair is on and all the students coming back into Bournemouth, 20,000 students in Bournemouth, of whom 3,000 are internationals. And there's 100 different nations represented amongst those 3,000 students. And amongst those 100 nations represented amongst those 3,000 students, the top 10, in terms of numbers, here in Bournemouth to study, include those from hard-to-reach nations like Indonesia and Turkey and China and Saudi Arabia. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of students in our town who come from hard-to-reach nations, nations where it would be very difficult for us to go and declare the gospel, but these people are a mile away from where we are now. And so we can be involved in frontline mission without even having to leave BCP. The gospel must go to the ends of the earth because of what Jesus did, because of what's happening in this story, because of what Jesus has accomplished at the cross, his death, his resurrection, what's going to happen at the end of the ages. The gospel must go. That's the frontier for us. The gospel must go to the ends of the earth. But the gospel must also go to the depths of our hearts, or another way to express that, perhaps an older word, but a helpful word. The gospel must go to the depths of our souls. See what Jesus says in verse 25. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, 
while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now, what is it about this instruction? Jesus urging us to self-hatred. What's, what's that about? Now, Jesus is clearly challenging his immediate hearers. He's also very clearly challenging us. And I think a way for us to help understand what Jesus is saying here is, is if we substitute where Jesus says life, if we think about the word self, which I think probably is actually a, a more helpful kind of translation, interpretation here of what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, if, you, if what you are pursuing in life is yourself, if what you're pursuing in life is your pleasures, your ambitions, your desires, your wants, your needs, you might find those things, but you risk losing what is infinitely more valuable. If you're self-seeking, you can actually end up losing yourself. In seeking to save yourself, you could forfeit your very soul. Now, there's lots of contemporary application for us in this. I think there's so much here we could explore and apply. Um, first century Palestine, Jesus warning people not to be focused on themselves. How much more is that a message we need to hear in our self-absorbed, self-obsessed 21st century context? John Altberg, in his book, Soul Keeping, writes this. The Journal of the American Medical Association cited a study that indicates that in the 20th century, people who lived in each generation were three times more likely to experience depression than folks in the generation before them. Despite the rise of the mental health profession, people are becoming increasingly vulnerable to depression. Why? Martin Seligman, a brilliant psychologist with no religious axe to grind, has a theory that it's because we've replaced church, faith, and community with a tiny little unit that cannot bear the weight of meaning. That's the self. We're all about the self. We revolve our lives around ourselves. Ironically, the more obsessed we are with ourselves, the more we neglect our souls. All of our language reflects this. If you're empty, you need to fulfill yourself. If you're stressed, learn how to take care of yourself. If you're on a job interview, you have to believe in yourself. If you're at the tattoo parlor, you must learn to express yourself. If someone dares to criticize you, you have to love yourself. If you're not getting your own way, you have to stand up for yourself. What should you do on a date? You ought to be yourself. What if yourself is a train wreck? What do you do then? Self is a standalone, do-it-yourself unit, while the soul reminds us that we were not made for ourselves. And he gives this example. Imagine singing. Then sings myself, my Savior God to thee. Or... Jesus, lover of myself. <laughs> Innately, we know that the self is not the soul, even as we do everything we can to preserve it. The gospel needs to go to the depths of our souls, to the depths of our hearts. What we need to do, what we're looking for, is salvation for our souls, not just to serve ourselves. And that means we need the gospel to go to the depths of our hearts. And our generation is desperate to find meaning and identity. And the way that Jesus says that we're going to find meaning and identity is by dying to ourselves. 
That is the way for our seed to multiply. Verse 24, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Die to yourself, and you can be truly fulfilled and truly fruitful. Live for yourself, and you will remain only a single seed, and you could forfeit your very soul. There's a transformation of our hearts that we need so that we follow Jesus wherever he leads. It's not so much searching out our destiny as it is about pursuing Jesus. Verse 26, whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. Our heart desire, our soul desire, should be to be where Jesus is. This means that we need to be attentive to him and imitative. That's a lot of T's imitative of him, that we're attentive to him. Like a faithful servant, we are looking at Jesus. Jesus, what is it that you want? What is it you desire? What do you want from me? Jesus, how can I honor you? How can I serve you? How can I bring attention to you? And also that we're imitators of Jesus, that we seek to be like him, follow his example, that we somehow are Christ in our World, in our little sphere of responsibility, your little sphere of responsibility, your, your home, your family, your job, your neighborhood, to be attentive to and imitative of Jesus, to be a little servant, to be a pastor in your sphere of responsibility, to let Jesus affect everything we do, and to understand the, the dignity and the responsibility that confers to us. That if you are a servant of Jesus, that confers extraordinary dignity to you. Whatever you're doing, no matter how mundane, how unrecognized what you do might do. In this room, we've got a whole range of people. We've got some people who are doing things which the world looks at and says, yeah, that's great. We've got other people who are doing things the world just passes over and says that's of no significance at all. But if you are a servant of Christ, the lowest has as much dignity as the highest. As a dignity in attending to and imitating Christ. And there's also this incredible responsibility that we're called to be servants of Jesus. That means we're called to faithfully serve him, know him, love him, reflect him, honor him, that our lives 24-7 should in some way reflect Jesus. That's a huge responsibility. I think myself all the times in the week when I do things, act in ways, think things which are not a reflection of Christ, there's a responsibility upon us to honor him in our words, thoughts, and actions. And it's very challenging, actually, to live this way, to be a faithful servant of Jesus, to die to ourselves, and to live for Christ. It's not easy. We see that in this passage, verse 42. Many, even among the leaders, believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. These people hadn't relinquished their hearts fully to Jesus. That's tragic. Got a picture of them sitting on a fence. And fence sitting is very uncomfortable. It's not a comfortable place to be. And I imagine these people were very uncomfortable. There's a, a sense in which they believed Jesus, but they weren't prepared to go all in. They weren't prepared to fully give their hearts to him. They weren't prepared for the gospel message to go to the depths of their hearts. Why? Because they wanted to receive praise from other people. And we can be so like that as well. 
But in the end, where do we want our praise to come from? Where do you want your, where do you want your recognition to come from? In the end, what is better? From other humans or from the living God? And so what we see in this passage is that the gospel must go. It must go to the ends of the earth. It has to. And it has to go to the depths of our hearts. The, the underlying theme of the Gospel of John and the title of our series is that you may believe. That you may believe. Belief that goes deep and belief that results in actions. And what we see in these stories that John records for us are that the words and the actions of Christ constantly push us towards decision. You can't read the Gospel of John and be left sitting on the fence. It's pushing you to make a decision. Which side of the fence will you be on? And this means that we need to hear the words of Christ and we need to hear correctly. And chapter 12 of the Gospel of John finishes with the last public words of Jesus. We then get into a long section we'll be looking at the next few weeks where Jesus is talking to his disciples. But the end of chapter 12 is the last words that John records Jesus speaking to the crowd. And so we should pay a special attention to them. And verse 50, Jesus says, The Father's command leads to eternal life. The Father's command leads to eternal life. Believe the Son, that's the Father's command, and that leads to eternal life. That's the choice. That's the decision to which the Gospel of John, to which Jesus pushes us. Will you believe the Son? Will you? Follow the command of the Father. And if you do, then the gospel has got to go deep to the depths of your heart and through us. It has to go to the ends of the earth. Jesus, thank you for what you have done. Thank you you have reordered all things. Thank you that you have proclaimed judgment on sin and cast out the power of the prince of this world. And I pray for us, Lord, I pray in this room that we would be a people who have made a clear decision to allow the gospel to get deep into our hearts, into our souls, to die to self, to live for you, and that, Jesus, we would play our part in carrying the gospel, this glorious good news, to the ends of the earth, whether that means actually going to a far-flung nation or whether it means just talking to somebody else here on the streets of BCP. Well, thank you that you've caught us up in this great global mission. Thank you that one day... Yes, all your people will be there in triumph, in the light, proclaiming Christ as King. Thank you that that is our destiny. Lord, we anticipate that day. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help us in the mission you've called us to. As all history drives to that moment, let us not miss actually what our destiny is as we seek to get caught up in the destiny of the people of God. In your name we ask it, Jesus. Amen.